Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. This week's podcast episode is proudly sponsored by Sizap. That is the motorcycle tracker and rider's mate. So if you're in the market for a very good loyal friend for your motorbike, go and check them out. That is Sizap, S-I-Z-Z-A-P-P.com. All of the details in the written description below. Right. Before I get to the main part of my podcast episode this week, and I've, I'm doing almost the entire episode today on some really interesting emails and messages that I got from people through Instagram, through the website. So almost the entirety will focus on that today because there's so much good content. But first of all, I'll give you just a quick update because yesterday I dropped off a bike that I'll be doing a YouTube video of in a few days time. And that is the mighty, oh, the mighty Honda Cub. A hundred or 85 cc bike from 1998, a hundred million units sold. It is the motorcycle that mobilized Southeast Asia. And it's so characterful. It, I had it for one day this 1998 model in red and white color scheme. I, and I liked it so much, I have just returned from the Honda dealership because I thought that they'd have one there. So I went to my local Honda dealership. I won't go into too much detail about the, the classic Honda car because there's a, a YouTube video on it coming out in a few days. But anyway, I went to this Honda motorcycles dealership in Ipswich on the east coast of England and next to it is a Triumph dealership, and I had no idea about this Triumph dealership. Walk in initially to the Triumph dealership because it's more uh, visually appealing than the Honda one. Had a look at the Triumph's lovely selection of bikes, and the dealership, the Triumph dealership, it's pretty nice. It's got a nice interior, the bikes are well laid out, and it's a, a fairly nice place that you would want to visit. Uh, but the Honda one next door, oh, it's just, it's just devoid of anything even remotely related to soul or character or pride or passion. It, it's this white room that looked a little bit like a warehouse. I wasn't sure if I was walking into the servicing department. Uh, there were about eight bikes just haphazardly parked in no particular order. Nothing remotely to signal that anyone has any kind of passion for motorbikes at all. I'm sure the people working there are, are lovely uh, and it's not necessarily their fault, but you know, dealerships, it's important. You know, the manufacturers, they spend a lot of time developing these incredible machines and sometimes you just get to a dealership and there's no character there. There's nothing making you want to go inside and buy a bike. Still, no one does it better, that purchasing experience, than Harley Davidson. They stand above everyone else. There is no motorcycle brand with a dealership network that I want to go into more than Harley Davidson. I can't wait to go into a Harley Davidson dealership. Triumph, they're not a million miles behind, but they're definitely behind Harley Davidson. And then most of the other, other dealers lag behind a fairly long way. There's a huge distant difference between the, the very best, the likes of Harley Davidson and the Honda one I went into today. Harley, the Americans, they just do it so well. That sense of theater, making you want to buy the bike, making you feel like you're part of a community. So important, so important in today's, in today's 
you know, in the day and age we're in now, to, to sell it, you know, it doesn't matter if you're selling clothes or motorbikes, get, get some coffees in there, do something. I don't know, I'm not a marketing expert, but there's got to be a way that this can be better done than the Honda dealership I went into today. Very eye-opening going in. Right, I'll move on. Anyway, long story short, I've, I've got sidetracked massively. There were no Honda Cubs in there, so I left. End of story. Okay, moving on to the first of my emails. And this is from a 62-year-old biker. And I like getting some emails from the older bikers because you get to hear about <coughs> some tips from bikers who have got a wealth of experience and what their thoughts are after riding for so many years. Have a listen to this from Andrew. Hi, Freddie. Just finished listening to your latest podcast. As a 62-year-old lifelong biker, I've always serviced all of my bikes. Even when I was a young man, you could never afford to pay a garage. Uh, so home repairs for bikes and cars was a necessity. New generations seem to have given up on any form of DIY. People should get over the fear. Don't listen to the scaremongering dealers and manufacturers sprout. Get your bike, uh, get your hands dirty, buy some tools and build a relationship with your bike. Do you know the price and, oh, sorry, and then he moves on to the, the BSA because he's considering the BSA gold star. Um, that's the first of the emails from Andrew. I then replied to Andrew and he then replied back. Hi, Freddie, thanks for reply. Referencing servicing your own bike. What is regrettable is that Haynes manuals no longer produce their brilliant workshop manuals. This is for two reasons. Number one. People have lost interest in mending things. It's a throwaway society. And number two, um, oh, sorry, and as far as Haynes goes, and as far as they state, motorcycles and cars have become too complicated. And manufacturers seem to garnish, uh, seem to think garnishing a bike with electronics makes it more sexy. Utter rubbish. More expensive to buy and repair with a much shorter running life. Ask anyone who has had to replace electronic suspension. The costs are eye-watering. Simple bikes are, uh, that look good, uh, like Royal Enfield, Mutt, and soon-to-be BSA. These are the bikes. Anyway, look forward to the next upload. By the way, check out the Benelli Imperiale 400. Brilliant, simple bike. I have one. It's glorious. Um, I, I am with uh, exactly along the same lines, Andrew, with your thinking with regards to well, firstly, with regards to modern bikes getting more and more complicated, you know, lean sensitive ABS, all of these things on a bike, electronic suspension, they're turning more and more into a two wheeled version of a car. There was a time when, you know, bikes, they were far, far simpler. But now some of the technology you get on the bikes, you know, you get it in a car. Uh, I sometimes have no idea how they actually managed to fit all of this technology onto a bike. And I'm with you 100 percent. I have heard so many stories about just completely ridiculous repair bills for motorbikes that are in line with a car. And you're right with the electronic suspension and things. It, it turns a bike, a motorcycle, into something quite different when you get these kind of gigantic, gigantic repair bills. Uh, something kind of similar, but along a different line. I've got uh, 2009. Uh, Fiat 500, the basic model. It's a petrol, it's manual, yada, yada, yada. And I went into a Fiat dealership um, because there was something wrong with it. And the, the mechanic who's working at the Fiat dealership, he actually said to me, um, 
honestly, if you would have had this car and it would have been the um, the, the trick, I think they do a, a semi-auto or auto box in the Fiat. If you would have had one of those, I, I would have said it's not bother repairing because the semi-auto slash automatic gearbox options on the Fiat 500s are relative to the cost of the bike so expensive and so complicated that everyone is too scared to try and repair them so the only thing they can do with them is replace the entire unit and the cost of that entire unit just makes it not worth repairing a relatively cheap motorcycle and this is this is the problem with everything complicated it very often goes wrong more often than the more basic ones and when it does go wrong the cost can sometimes be so eye-watering it is genuinely and this is ridiculous but it's genuinely worth just writing off the vehicle it's not an economic repair uh, and with regards to andrew your point on doing some diy work yourself i agree it, almost every brit knows of these haynes manuals growing up it was the go-to thing to try and at least do the basic repairs to your vehicles i i've I've had one for every one of my vehicles up until now. Uh, and the fact that they're now disappearing because vehicles are too complicated, yeah, it's, it's a shame. It's the end of an era. I'm just glad we've got bikes like the Royal Enfield Interceptor that are genuinely simple because these are bikes you can still work on yourself. But when they do get too complicated, you know, you're looking at a lot extra money to repair your motorbike. And in essence, motorbikes are simple things. There's nothing difficult to get to on a motorbike, whereas with a car you can need a ramp, you can you know, get messy having to scooch underneath it and stuff, and you're a bit intimidated by the, the overall size of things. But bikes are very different. You can see everything, you can get to everything so easily. It's not rocket science, but I agree with you. A lot of the time, we're scared off by it, me included. You know, all of these electronics going on, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly daunting. It makes everything so much simpler when less is more. When you're not having to unplug 10 different wires in order to detach one very simple thing. It'll be interesting to see when, when we move over completely to electric, how much of an effect this has if, if it's just over. You know, if all we can do is change the brakes and that's it. You know, it's the end of any kind of personal mechanics, DIY mechanics, because there's just nothing that you can do because it's just a whole load of wires and batteries. I'll be very interested to see how it goes. Andrew, thank you. Moving on. Um, Freddie, enjoyed your Euro trip. Would you consider dedicating a podcast to it and go through your route journey, highs and lows in more detail? It would be great to hear more advice about traveling through Europe and the different laws in each country you had to adhere to. Um, Honestly, I would actually go through all of this in an entire podcast episode, but there, there wouldn't be enough to go through. Simply being, I didn't, I didn't spend any more than one minute planning. I didn't plan the route. I didn't plan where to stay. I didn't look into any laws of biking in different countries. I did nothing. And I promise you this, I'm an awful organiser. All I did was pack my panniers the day before, bought my tickets the day before, so that's just the ferry ticket the day before, made sure there was a UK sticker on one of my panniers, and I headed off. I had no idea where I would be at any point on any day. I didn't know where I'd camp. The only reason I decided to camp where I did is because I said, at least on the outbound trip, 
once it gets to 8.30, the second I see a fairly open space where I think I can hide my bike and my tent because I was wild camping, then I'll do it. But camping-wise, I was wild camping, which I think, I think may technically be illegal in France and or Spain, but I just banked on the fact that they're such relatively huge countries, it's not going to be an issue. And in reality, as long as you clear up after yourself, no one will ever see you. Um, with regards to language issues, I did the pathetic thing of just speaking English more slowly and, well, I don't blame them, no one could understand me anyway, but there's very little understanding needed. You just point at a menu if you need some food and you get, you get across things without any real issue at all. Genuinely, and I mean this, there's, there's almost no planning that you need to do. You can do as much planning or as little as you like. Um, it's it's extremely extremely easy with regards to the highs and lows i mean the highs were just when you're you're packed up in the morning for me the best bit is you pack up your tent in the morning after night's sleep and you put your gloves on engine on and you hit the road and it's that magical feeling of the first 5 or 10 minutes when you're you're back on the road you don't know where you're going to be later in the day you don't know what scenery you're going to see or what sights you're going to see and you know you've got a whole day riding with glorious weather ahead of you. It is the most incredible feeling of freedom I've, I've ever had in my life. It's priceless and I will continue to do big trips like that because that feeling is really, really magical and unforgettable and things that you look back on when you're 80 years old and genuinely you'll never forget. And the lowest points were, were sometimes... Uh, you know, you, it gets pitch black and and there's not much to do in the tent and you haven't eaten because you didn't plan it correctly and you just wish you'd have planned it a little bit better so there'd be somewhere nice to stay or you would have charged your phone so at least you can watch some movies or something like that uh, to pass the time in the tent. Maybe I just would have done a couple of things a little bit better, but in general... Yeah, there isn't a huge amount I'd have changed. Best thing to do, if you're looking to do it, just book that ferry ticket and head off. I promise you can do it with, with no more than half an hour's planning at all. Good luck. Have fun. I continue. From Chris. Uh, Freddie, after listening to episode... Oh, have a listen to this. I like this. Now, please... I am no financial expert, but I like to share a broad range of, um, of, well, whether it be tips or insights or people's personal opinions. I find it very, very interesting. Uh, and I have been told off for some of my atrocious financial advice, so please, please take what I say with a pinch of salt and not, not too many hateful emails, please. I can deal with a few, but not too many. Okay, here we go. Listen to this. This is from Chris. Thank you so much, Chris. Freddie, uh, after listening to episode 22, where you had a look at bike finance, it reminds me of another option in the world of credit card, oh, in the world of credit, which you didn't consider. That being the long-term interest-free credit card. It's not uncommon to find 24 or even sometimes 36-month interest-free credit cards, which, depending on circumstances, can have quite high limits. Many of these are either 0% for purchases or offer a 0% money transfer term, which allows you to transfer up to 90% of the card's limit to your bank account uh, to your bank account as cash. This allows for purchases of expensive used motorcycles, such as nearly new Indians and Harleys, with no interest cost 
providing you clear it in the period given, or you can just transfer the remaining balance to another credit card with interest free for another long period. Just food for thought after listening to your episode. Um, I didn't know money transfers like this existed until this year. Thank you, Chris. Well, there you go. It's actually a very good point because it's very common for credit cards to offer two years or so interest free. And especially if you're looking at a cheaper bike, for example, yeah, you can do it for the, the more expensive ones, but Royal Enfield Meteor, £3,650. You can get a credit card for easily for 4K or so, two years interest free. That means you can just spread that 4K cost over two years and that would be, I don't know, let's say 150 150 or so, 180 pounds a month for two years. You own the bike in its entirety at the end of it. You don't have to go through loads of loan forms and stuff like that. No balloon, no balloon payments at the end of it. And you haven't paid one penny over the original retail price. Food for thought. I move over to the US now. This is from Rob. This is interesting because and I've heard this a couple of times now. I'll read out Rob's and then I'll get to a little personal thing from me. Um, Rob is currently in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, Freddie, uh, all in all, and this is someone who's moving from a, a Triumph Tiger, selling it and moving over to a Harley Softail Standard. So Freddie, all in all, really looking forward to the move over to Harley. The Vibe, the 2021 Softail Standard in gloss black with its chrome and extraordinary wire wheels exudes that classic design that makes this my favorite Harley-Davidson. The quality of the Harley-Davidson Softail is very impressive. Hard metal services and glossy black and glossy paint are extraordinary. No plans to modify the exhaust uh, volume, keeping my neighborhood happy. Harley-Davidson dealers I've shopped at are easygoing, offering test rides and welcoming summer barbecues, contrasting what I've shared via experiences with Triumph. US Harley-Davidson dealers are everywhere and quite sizable versus smaller presence offerings from Ducati, BMW, Moto Guzzi, etc. Friendly Harley, uh, friendly Harley culture is also quite unique. I enjoyed the Tiger very much. Least favorite experience is when riding with a pillion and a full tank. It's honestly quite hot, heavy, uh, hot, heavy, quite top heavy even for me. The Harley Softail offers a more laid back style with that lower center of gravity and ride position comfort, more in keeping with mine, uh, with my style. Uh, in coastal Maine, we refer to this experience as life in the slow lane. Well, this is good because, you know, this is what I've been saying. Harley Davidson, I know of a lot of people who, I was about to say get sucked into that whole Harley Davidson, whole Harley Davidson thing, but that makes me sound like people are getting suckered into it in the wrong way. And that's not what I mean, because I love everything about it too. Harley-Davidson draw you in with this brilliant marketing. They do it so well. They, they've got superb products. Their bikes are just about my favorite bikes on the market. But they, they draw you in with that incredible marketing, the amazing showrooms, the, everything about it, the lifestyle that they sell on top of the bike. And it's the lifestyle that Harley sells so incredibly well. Just as Rob said, the barbecues, the cultures, the meetup at the dealerships, they're superb the way they do it, Harley-Davidson. And 
and if you look at someone like Rob, a biker who's moving over from a, a Triumph to a Harley Davidson, I'm sure at least part of that decision will be based on the dealer network and the quality of those networks and the lifestyle that those dealers offer on top of the bike. Because we do, as bikers, most of us bikers, I would say, we do buy into the lifestyle as much as we buy into the bike. It's an incredible lifestyle that biking offers, really incredible. So to not sell that lifestyle is a missed opportunity, I think. Um, and touching on your other point, Rob, I agree. The Harley Softail Standard, I think, is my pick of the range now. It's, it's a very, very good point. It's a lovely, understated, classically styled bike. It's, at least in Harley terms, decently manageable value. I do mean that only in Harley terms because it's still a, it's still an expensive bike, but it's a lovely looking simple machine. And I, I'm with you, Rob. I think it would be my pick of the bunch. Right, let's move over now to JB. JB in Scotland. I'll get to your second point, JB, in a second, but first point. This will will resonate with, with quite a lot of bikers. Hi, Freddie. Um, listening to your latest podcast about the bruff, it got me mulling about how crazy high-end cars and motorbikes have become, ostensibly only made to service the ultra-high net worth and overseas buyers. Yes, the bruff is, a beautiful, uh, is beautiful, but that price... Manufacturers, including the likes of Ducati, now making bespoke bikes for high prices and like Bruff, Arch is an elite connotation to all this that doesn't sit well in bike culture. Why? These are overpriced status bikes. Oh, sorry, these overpriced status bikes are now st uh, starting to bleed starting to bleed into the custom bike scene and changing the custom bike scene, brackets, and perhaps not for the better. Bike scene was always based on blue-collar culture of rebellion. For me, Shedro at the Bike Shed show and shows like Kickback in Gloucester represent the best of custom bikes, and personally, I'm not a fan of inflated prestige builds or limited-run bikes nor making collectible bikes for collecting sake. One-offs I can live with, like the Death Machines uh, makes, but these limited run bikes feel more insidious and more corporate. I can understand that low volume means high price, but then explain to me CCM. Bikes are for freedom and not for fireplaces. Um, your, your man north of the wall. Best to you and Monica. Thanks, JB. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting this because I remember when I did the, the YouTube video on the special edition Breitling Triumph and it was one of the most polar, polarizing videos I've done. Some people, you know, they love the idea of hooking up two great brands, but there was a very sizable chunk of people who, you know, who didn't, who didn't like an, an inflated price point for you know, no more performance on the bike, just, you know, depending on your view, a nice tie-in with the Breitling, some different paintwork, things like that. But, but does it lose the purity of what biking is about? Should biking be, you know, more about getting your hands dirty, more about uh, an, 
an affordable, attainable mode of transport for the masses, not something that, you know, really starts to push up into fairly expensive car money that is only a, a plaything for a collector or, you know, someone who's, who's got very, very deep pockets. Or, on the other argument, is it good to have this type of stuff so there's something for everyone? It's... It's a really interesting point, this, because there'll be a lot of people here who will, I know, agree with this. I wanted to get onto that in more detail, JB, but the problem is you sent me another email after this, and I really wanted to get to this even more, so I have to move on. Okay, this carries on from JB. Uh, Freddie, turn this on its head. Let's say the Bruff Superior is £44,000 list price. Well, JB, it's, it's 60. I spoke to the salesman at, um, at Goodwood Festival of Speed. I think it's 60 thousand pounds but i'm going to stick with your 44k price point because um it's a good place to start with the next bit of this uh, so freddie turn this on its head for the price for bruff superior it's 44k list price you could build a dream garage of bikes what would yours be okay okay we've got a 44 thousand pound budget you could go out and buy well you could buy a bruff superior and have 16k left but 44K, you could buy one high-end motorbike. To be fair, I think there's even a, one of the new Nortons is 44K or something, or 45K. Yeah, they're, they're getting expensive, some of these high-end bikes. It's, they're getting really expensive. Um, so what can you buy for the price of one of these high-end bikes? Here are the rules, a minimum of 10 bikes, no one bike can cost more than 15K, and you must cover at least one bike from all of these categories. Classic, cruiser, sports naked, sports tour, adventure bike. No bike built after 2015, all from verified site or vendors, uh, secondhand only, and must not cost more than 44,000 pounds. Well, JB, JB's done it for 40,746 pounds. I have to read out JB's and I have then, I've then played the game myself and I have written my list of 10. And I've got to be completely honest, JB, I would have chosen very possibly four or five from your list, but that's too boring and I would seem too pathetic looking like I'm copying you. So I've made sure not to choose what you've gone for. Um, but you've got a good choice. I know there's a few Australians that would like the third, third one here. You, this, is, this is JB's list here, under 44K, but I think 10 bikes here. 10 bikes. It's mind-blowing. Okay. Number one, Moto Guzzi Le Mans, Mark III, 4,000 pounds. Number two, Royal Enfield Continental GT. I think that would be the five, that must be the 500cc one. 3,291 pounds. I mean, before, I can't go into too much detail because I could go on forever, but it's just 4,000 pound bike and a 3,000 pound bike. It's such good value. Number three, the, and I know a few Australians that were like this, Victory Judge, that's 7,995 pounds, under 8K for such a great bike that was, I believe, owned by Polaris. In effect, they are Indian motorcycles, just with slightly different styling. I think they went out of business, but very, very good bikes, superbly made, underappreciated, you can get a great bargain, and... I think they'll make a very good investment proposition because they're not around anymore. 
really interesting bike. They look incredible. Victory Judge at under 8K. Okay, that was the Cruiser Sports Naked, a bike I've touched on before. Kajiva Raptor, 1,000cc at 2,000 pounds. I think this is going to go through the roof in the next two years or three years. I can't believe you can get these for £2,000. Go and grab one of those if you can, if you're looking for a great value bike that can only go one way price range wise. Number, uh, the next one I move on to, fairly similar. Ducati Monster 1200, that's £6,750. Next one up, this is one that's a surefire future classic and I is it just blows my mind you can get this for so cheap. Insane. This is the Yamaha V Max. This is the, the huge, assuming it's the 1700cc one. I think that, that's the only engine they did. The huge engined V twin Yamaha. Ridiculous bike in the, in the best way. That's a compliment. Yamaha V Max, 3,000 pounds. I mean, these are incredible investment bikes. Next one, another one I'd have put in. I would have put all of these in my list. Suzuki GSX 1400. This is the, oh, what do you call them? A muscle bike. Proper, proper muscle bike. 2,950 pounds for a 1,400cc monster. Incredible sports tourer. Again, ah, it sounds ridiculous, but I'd have put this in. Honda Blackbird. £1,995, one of the originals, a beast of a bike. Next up, Moto Guzzi Rossa Le Mans. That's a more expensive one, £7,000. So we're going slightly more premium there. And the final one, how can you not have this for the adventure bikes? BMW R1100GS. And again, I can't believe the price, £1,795. There are bargains out there for every single budget. Superb value. Here's my choice. And I'll do this to wrap up the, the podcast episode. Have a listen to this and get ready to be amazed. I have spent slightly more than JB. I've maxed out the budget almost to the penny, £44,000 in total. I have 10 motorbikes in the list. Have a listen. All of these 10 bikes for just 44K, I can hardly believe it myself. Number one, Royal Enfield Classic 500. Uh, it's that really unique feeling of being on something so incredibly characterful. I rode it in Tenerife and it's one of the most amazing feelings I've ever had riding that bike. We can get a 2013 model of that for £3,650. Next up, my dream bike. Harley-Davidson Softail Deluxe. I haven't messed about here. I've gone high-end, £9,000 for a 2005 model. I have blown a big chunk of the budget there, so I had to be slightly more careful with others. Next up, now, JB may have gone for the Suzuki 1400. I've gone for the Yamaha XJ1300, 2004 model at £3,200. That is a proper muscle bike, an arrival to the Suzuki. Big 1200cc, a big 1300cc engine, Yamaha XJ1300. Next up, BMW R1200GS 2005 model. That is, of course, the adventure bike, and that's just 4.5k. It's good value, 4.5k for 17-year-old BMW GS. It'll go on forever. Into the what would we call these? Sports Tora. Sports Tora. I've got Honda Goldwing. 
the 1500cc variant, 2000 model. I chose this because for me it's the most characterful looking one with a, a sofa level of comfort rear seat. And you can pick one of those up. So much bike for the money, 5,000 pounds. I move on to a cheeky purchase and this is one, a bike I've always wanted and I, I do think I'll own it one day, Triumph Rocket. Six and a half thousand pounds, 2.3 liters, monster of a bike. You won't lose a penny on it, 2008 model. Another bike that I must own one day. You'll be surprised, not the usual kind of bike I'd go for, but there's something about this. It's just so ridiculous, it's brilliant. Suzuki Hayabusa, 2004 model, 1300 cc, gigantic horsepower. It was one of the original beasts and you can pick it up for under 4K, 3,900. Next up, BMW K1300R. That is a 2010 model. It's £6,000. It's 173 horsepower. And that, that is, it's, what would you class it as? A, a super naked, a muscle bike. It looks like the Batmobile. And at 6K now, for a 12-year-old one, that's, it's quite tempting. Hand on heart, it's probably too scary for me, but that is an awful lot of bike for the money, and that's looking like quite a good buy. And let me wrap it up, the final two. Honda Cub, 1998 model, 2,000 pounds. It's about the cheapest they get now. They're going to be going up in value, and I predict in three or four years, there'll be 4K minimum for one of those classic ones. And finally, Vespa GTS 300. That's the 250cc Vespa, 2008 model, 2,000 pounds. They're comfy, they're brilliant for the city, and I've been told by an owner of one of these, off the lights in an urban environment, you will leave most motorcycles. They're that quick. So for a bit of comfy city, not even cruising, city blasting, city whizzing, I think that'd be a great option. Right, I'll end it there. Thank you everyone for listening to this week's episode, and thank you for Sizap for sponsoring this week's episode. Have an amazing week all, enjoy the weather, and I'll speak to you all in the next one.